Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. On today's podcast, we welcome special guest, David Friedberg, founder and CEO of The Production Board. David's an entrepreneur, business leader, and investor who founded The Climate Corporation, which was sold to Monsanto for $1.1 billion. He now leads The Production Board, a holding company of businesses established to solve the most fundamental problems. On the show, Dave discusses his early experiences in investment banking, Google, and what it was like working with Larry Page, the founding, growth, and sale of his first venture, the Climate Corporation, high potential investment themes that he is currently focused on, insights into one of his latest deals, Lavoro, Brazil's largest agricultural inputs retailer, and more. So with no further ado, here's our show on reimagining Earth through investing with the production board CEO, David Friedberg. All right, I'm welcoming Dave, CEO of the production board entrepreneur, podcaster. Really excited to have you on the show today. Now, before we get into all the stuff that you're up to currently, I did want to get into your background. Now, a common theme with respect to a lot of the podcast guests that we have on the show, generally CEOs, business leaders, entrepreneurs, as many of them start their careers in investment banking, private equity, capital markets, things of that nature. Now, you were no different. Dave, do you mind talking about you know those formative years when you came out of school, your first job in investment banking, and then ultimately how you transitioned from that role to uh, an early employee at Google? Yeah. So my background in college and my kind of intention from an early age was to kind of go into uh, science, mathematics, and physics. I majored in astrophysics at UC Berkeley. During that period of time, there was a a year where I lived in upstate New York and I worked at a pool hall. Pool hall manager made me go to his house to play poker where I gave away all the money I made working at the pool hall, which was (laughs) $4.25 an hour. So I learned the hard lesson uh, really early on. I bought a bunch of books on poker, learned how to play. When I went to Berkeley, I played in the card rooms around the Bay Area and made money, um, did pretty well. I mean, I had a summer in my sophomore year where I made like $10,000, which is a lot of money as a sophomore at that time. Now, at that time, so I was, you know, um, that that was kind of a hobby of mine while I was majoring in in astrophysics. I was going to go to grad school, but the dot-com boom was happening. I had never taken a a science or, or, sorry, um, a finance or econ or business class. But man, I wanted to work in Silicon Valley because it was changing the world and technology was clearly having this incredible impact on every industry. And so how do I end up working in the tech industry the hot job to get was investment banking come out of, coming out of college. I was not qualified whatsoever for an investment banking job. However, I put my poker experience as a headliner on my resume. And so I got a bunch of interviews with investment bankers who thought it'd be cool to meet with a poker player, which was fairly novel at the time. It was 2000, 2000, yeah, 99, 2000. So it was, it was kind of the pre-online poker thing. That's how I got the jobs, uh, the job interviews. And I ended up working at this investment bank called Broadview which was focused on technology, the technology industry doing M&A. So I worked on a bunch of public and private uh, transactions, probably 20, 25 deals in two years that I was there. 
and I got to learn every everything about finance and accounting um, and uh, you know basic kind of business uh, from from those two years of experience. And the only reason I got the job interviews was because of my poker playing. Then I ended up uh, working in tech. I worked at Google in uh, started there in March of '04, and that was or April of '04. And so that was um, kind of my first real operational experience. However, prior to that, I had started two tech companies on my own. And so I had written the software. I bought all the books on programming, learned how to write in PHP and MySQL and set up my own servers and ran these sites and they made money. So that's how I got the job interview at Google, not because I was a computer science guy by background, but because I had this experience building these, these services and these sites and could speak really well to how I used AdWords and how I used Google services at the time. And, um, and so that, that got me the, the job at Google. And then I left and started my company, which became the Climate Corporation in 2006. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your short question. Now, with respect to your time at Google, I think you're one of the first 1,000 employees, and now they have you know, tens of thousands or perhaps more than 100,000. 18 years later, are you surprised that the company's become so big and so dominant? 170,000. So we always used to say, or Eric Schmidt did a good job of articulating this. He was the CEO at the time when I was there, that you know Google's total addressable market, and I think it's a really um, uh, important kind of reading for, for a lot of investors. It wasn't online advertising. Online advertising at the time was a very small market, uh, relatively speaking. It was, you know, people said, hey, it's only, you know, a couple billion dollars a year. Eric's point was like, if we're really good at matching consumers with uh, producers or sellers, and we can get a percentage of doing that matching, our market is actually a percentage of total commerce. And a percentage of total commerce is, Trillions, you know, it's it's a multi-trillion-dollar market that you're grabbing a few percentage points of. So that makes us a very big business, and that's exactly what happened. I don't remember who it was. I think it might have been Mark Mahaney who said shortly after the IPO, Google could be a two-thousand-dollar stock one day, and the IPO price was thirty-five and or uh, traded up to eighty, and then it was like at a hundred dollars on the first day of trading. So two thousand on a on a split-adjusted basis is like $1,000 or $500. Of, uh, uh, actually, sorry, I shouldn't, because uh, they split again. But basically, Google exceeded, and everyone said he was crazy <laughs> for this prediction. Like, there is no way Google is going to be 20 times this market cap. How could they ever be a multi-hundred billion dollar market cap company? And obviously, they eclipsed it. And I think they really did demonstrate what was, it's really, really impressive and incredible and amazing to see, but not out of the scope of the intention of the business at that time when I worked there which was to be the most efficient and effective way to match buyers and sellers across all commerce categories and capture a piece of commerce. And that's what advertising effectively is, or personalized advertising, um, is really to, to give you, the internet user, uh, something that you will actually find value in. You know, ads that are personally matched to you that you find value in don't feel intrusive or annoying. They actually feel valuable. Uh, and Google's done a better job of that than you know, any other company in history. Yeah, it's a really useful insight, and your timing could not have been better there. Then in 2006, you left Google to start uh, your first company, the Climate Corporation. What were some of the biggest challenges uh, you faced as, as a new entrepreneur there? I mean, what weren't the challenges? I, I, uh, you, know, it, it, you go into building a business, and you have an assumption about what you're going to build and what you're going to do, and you're very quickly knocked about by the gusts of wind <laughs> or the rocking of the ocean or whatever it is, that, that whatever analogy you want to use that best describes a brownie in field, <laughs> meaning like 
there are these vectors that are pushing at you from many different angles. Some of them are very big vectors. Some of them are small, but none of them push you in the direction that you expected you were going. And what I mean by that is you'll try something and it doesn't work. And then you'll try something else and it doesn't work. And you end up kind of exploring this very big space. When we started the business, the idea was 70% of businesses lose money due to the weather. Let's make weather insurance available online. And when we started to do that work, we didn't know what markets, we didn't know how to sell, we didn't know what the value prop would be, we didn't know what customers were really looking for. I sold, I've been to every convention for every industry you can think of. I've been to the National Golf Course Owners Association, the Car Wash Owners Association, the travel, International Travel Agencies Convention, and we sold our weather insurance product idea into all these industries and figure out how to build products that were useful to each of these industries. Ultimately, we actually focused on agriculture of all markets and agriculture was scalable and um, farmers put their entire net worth on the line every year. They invest their entire net worth typically in their, in their seed and their fertilizer and their crop protection products. And then the biggest driver of outcome is the weather. And they're working on very thin operating margins. So a farmer can get completely wiped out if the weather is bad. So that ended up being a perfect fit for us. And then we had to iterate and iterate and iterate to make a product that worked. So the biggest lesson really was that you don't know what you don't know till you know it. You really have to go out there and explore this vast unknown. The rate at which you can explore and the rate at which you can iterate your business and your product is the highest predictor of success. Because whatever you're thinking going into building a new business, meaning no one's ever done it before, is likely going to be flawed. And the real question is how quickly can you explore all the options that haven't been explored yet to figure out what will work? And I think that's one thing I would commend my younger self for doing a good enough job of with the you know, kind of drive the team to iterate very quickly and explore lots of different options and eliminate the ones that weren't working and continue to pursue the path of those that did and, and, and keep, uh, keep iterating to success. Because if you don't do it fast enough, if you're too analytical, meaning you have to figure out what's going to happen before you take action, you typically end up running out of money. So if you are willing to take action before you know what the answer will be, then you have a better shot at not running out of money. And that's what I see being very hard for people I work with at Google or people that come from uh, a background where you've had a history of success, of repeated success, or a history of analytical work where you want to make sure you analyze all the angles before you make an, a decision. And if you do that, you take too long and the business dies because there's so many decisions that need to be made. Let's say you have to walk a thousand steps before you figure it out. If it takes you a year to walk the first 20 steps, you're not going to get there. So... I don't know, that was the biggest lesson for me that I still really think about as a framing for whether or not an entrepreneur or a business will be successful. It's less about the core thesis. It's more about the team's orientation in that sense, how, how culturally attuned they are to being able to do that. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate, one of Canada's leading alternative investment solution providers. Do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns? Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And that's useful because from a cursory view, people will say, oh, Dave started a climate corporation in 2006, several years later exited to Monsanto for more than $1 billion. It must have been you know, uh, an overnight success, uh, that easy, but uh, it's helpful to get a sense of 
you know, the iterating, the pivoting, and, you know, trying to find that product market fit. Now, with respect to the end of that process, the exit, what spurred that sale? And, you know, what was some of the thoughts behind your decision to sell the company? Okay, I'll tell you guys, I mean, there's a couple ways I can kind of tell this part of the story, but we were not intending to sell the company. But we had this series of conversations with Monsanto, and I knew nothing about Monsanto at the time. I, I only knew the name as being evil. So I'm like, oh, that's a bad company. They're evil. They're going to destroy the planet. Why the hell would we meet with them? Well, it turns out they're the biggest seed company and biggest one of the biggest crop protection companies in the world. And they sell all these products to farmers. And you know, as you go deeper, you really get to understand that the ag inputs market, the crop inputs market, meaning the products that farmers buy that they use to grow their, 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 their crop, is an incredibly sophisticated and technology-oriented market. And it's not technology in the digital sense. We often use the term technology and everyone thinks, oh, digital, software, internet. Technology goes back to mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, uh, biochemical engineering lately, uh, gene editing, precision gene editing. In the therapeutic space, there's many different kinds of technology that are not software. So when you really get into it you, you, um, and you, you come from a digital age like I do, you don't have a strong appreciation for the history and the importance of uh, chemical engineering, biochemical engineering, mechanical engineering on the transition of the human species over the centuries past. And particularly when we were facing peril, right? Like agriculture is the engineering solution to running out of food because we weren't getting enough food from the trees and from dead animals lying on the ground. So humans learned to engineer the world around us and put crops in the ground and grow them and water them and eat them. And over time, our ability to kind of engineer the earth to make the things that we want to consume got better and better as our toolkit expanded. And our toolkit expanded into mechanical tools, eventually the, tr the plow and then the tractor. And the tractor allowed one person to do the work that it previously took 100 people to do. And then chemical engineering, the Haber-Bosch process at the beginning of the 20th century really transformed the arc of humanity because we were going to run out of food because we didn't have enough fertilizer we were mining fertilizer from the guano fields off of the coast of South America uh, and the uh, Atacama Desert. And the nitrate that we were mining was running out. And that's how we made fertilizer. And you need fertilizer or else the crops won't grow. You need nitrogen or they won't grow. And so when we were running out of fertilizer, there was this meeting of all the chemical engineers. And they said, my God, the world's going to run out of food. We're all going to die. And then they figured out this Haber-Bosch process and they engineered ammonia from atmospheric nitrogen and boom, it took the world from a billion people to 7 billion people. I mean, really, we could now grow food anywhere we wanted by just putting fertilizer on the ground that could be made using electricity. And today, 2 to 6% of the world's electricity is used to make that fertilizer. Monsanto, for me, I got to understand that history and I didn't know it before. And I got to understand the history of farmers using herbicides and insecticides and fungicides and pesticides and seed and plant breeding and how plant breeding went from being ad hoc and random to looking at the phenotype or the shape of a plant and then, you know, running the breeding lines. And plant breeding goes back over 100 years, 150 years, 200 years in terms of being a commercial enterprise. And Monsanto had the best plant breeding organization. And then they had also uh, been the first to really commercialize gene editing tools as a way to transform plants and do things that were very novel and advantageous for farmers. So I got really excited about what they were doing and the opportunity for digital to transform agriculture. And it really became clear to me that agriculture, like many other industries, has historically operated in a very analog sense. You know, we kind of make decisions using gut and intuition and in the, in the physical world, things change. 
and we we make physical decisions in the physical world based on some history or some understanding of what might happen. But digital technology gives us the ability to number one, sense or digitize what's happened historically. Number two, to build predictive models about what will change in the future if you do different things. And then number three is to create a prescription to do different things. So what seed to plant, when to plant it, how many seeds per acre, how much fertilizer to use, et cetera. All of those digital capabilities improve the productivity of farming. And productivity is defined as getting more or less. So can you put less fertilizer in the ground? Can you get more food per acre? Can you get more food per unit of carbon or water or dollars spent? And so productivity is not just more profitable, it's actually more sustainable. It means you can get more food with less of a carbon footprint. You get more food without using persistent chemicals. You can get more food without using as much water. And so digital tools allow us to model better decisions on the farm. And now digital tooling is embedded in nearly every piece of farm equipment. Uh, Everyone has an iPad, everyone has an iPhone, and all of this data is being generated about what's going on on the farm and um, prescriptions can be delivered and driven back on the farm to drive better outcomes. So I got really excited about the prospect of working um, with these guys, and they had the biggest data set that existed in agriculture at the time, all these field trials of what crops were planted and what happened and so on. So we were our, our concept was we could use that data and then make, build our predictive models, which is what our, our business was, was kind of analytics for farmers, helping them make better decisions. And, and that could drive better outcomes. And the scale that they operated at was significant. When we sold the business to Monsanto, we had about 10 million acres that used our product. Within the first year, we had grown to 100 million acres after the acquisition. And just to give you a sense of scale, the whole U.S. Corn Belt, the entire Midwest Corn Belt, about 160 million acres. Wow. So really tremendous growth very quickly. And so that's a little history of kind of why that got exciting. And then obviously there was a whole negotiation around, guys, look, we just raised a bunch of money. The deal needs to be at least three times the last round's price for our investors to be willing to sell. They're like, well, it's not worth that. We're like, yes, it is. Okay, it is. I mean, back and forth. Okay, that's it. It's done. So, I mean, that's, you know, there was a whole negotiation process that, 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 that uh, made that happen. Now, fast forward to your current role as CEO of the production board, and you aim to reimagine the earth and create a better home for everyone. And I imagine that a lot of these technical concepts that you just discussed really a focus of what you're up to there. Now, in terms of what you're trying to accomplish at the production board, like what sort of activities uh, do you get up to there in support of that objective? Yeah, so we operate as an investment holding company. So uh, we use cash off our balance sheet to start new businesses, uh, to fund uh, businesses kind of in the venture stage. And then in the case of our SPAC, to do a big uh, transaction that can be supported by some of our technology businesses. So our technology businesses really extend some of the things I talked about earlier. So genome engineering. Um, You know, 10 years ago, CRISPR was discovered. And in in the years that followed, CRISPR tools and related tools have allowed humans to progress from doing very ad hoc changes to the genome of an organism, meaning change the DNA, to being very precise about how you change the DNA of that organism, to turning genes on or off, to taking genes out of the organism, to putting genes in, to being specifically to cross certain genes together from the same species to make new traits in the plant. So gene editing is not just unlocking opportunities in agriculture, it's also unlocking opportunities in personalized medicine, in human health. Cell and gene therapies are going to completely transform nearly every disease vector that, um, that face humans. And, uh, and then digital tools. So more and more is being digitized. So we've started a number of businesses. One is in the soil microbiome. So we do soil microbiome engineering. 
um, we take uh, samples of farmers' fields and we sequence the DNA and then uh, make recommendations to farmers about what to do to change outcomes in their farm in a way that changes the microbiome. These are little microbes that exist in the soil that have a huge influence on the crop. Uh, we have a human gut health business that changes the, the gut microbiome. Uh, we have a plant gene editing business where we're building very novel plant species uh, using new approaches to gene editing. We have uh, a business that does high throughput uh, cell engineering uh, for creating new microbes that can make animal proteins or antibodies that have never been seen before that are much cheaper than, than using the traditional source. So by changing the genome very rapidly and evolving it on a chip, you can actually um, uh, you know, create uh, a significant cost reduction and suddenly make all these products much, much cheaper using a microbe. So microbes are the factories of the future uh, is a key part of that thesis. Um, and so, because uh, you know, again, if you can change the genome specifically, you can recode a microorganism like a yeast cell or a bacterial cell to make stuff for you. So those are the businesses that we've started uh, and built at the production board. Um, and so, you know, we'll sometimes uh, be kind of a, an investor in someone else's business. Sometimes we'll start the business ourselves, and then we'll bring in other investors to join us later as the business hits certain milestones. Um, and so we have about 12 different businesses that we're investors in today. Uh, and that's kind of how we we operate on on a um, you know on a baseline. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. So someone that, that helped with the initial financing of the production board was, was Larry Page. And, and you've worked quite closely with him over over the years, whether it be with the production board and, and Google. What what are some of your biggest takeaways from from working with him over these years? You know, one of the biggest impressions Larry's always made on me is, um, you know, asking yourself, are you really thinking big enough? You know, a lot of people don't really give Larry full credit for his ability to drive outcomes at Google by really pushing the envelope on what's possible. When I was working at Google, there was this very crazy project at the time to scan all the world's books. And people thought it was nuts, but Google set up a friggin' warehouse, multiple warehouses, and they built optical scanners and robots that turned the pages of books and scanned them and then did optical character recognition and digitized them and made them searchable. People thought it was nuts at the time, but I think that was a good project to demonstrate how he and Sergey think in terms of, are you thinking big enough? If we want to digitize all the world's information, it's not just the stuff that's online. The whole world can and should be digitized. And then that should provide insights back to people uh, to drive human progress. It's a really profound mission, if you think about it. And he really tried to articulate it in some of the ways that he drove the teams to think bigger. And then, you know, even some simple stuff. I, I was at Google when we launched Gmail. Um, it was April 1st, 2004. And when we launched Gmail, everyone thought it was an April Fool's prank <laughs> because you got a gigabyte of uh, email storage for free. We don't even talk about email storage anymore. But if you guys remember, back in the day, Yahoo Mail and Hotmail, it was like $19 a month for 100 megabytes of email. You, you know, data was so expensive to store, yeah. you had to pay money 
to have an email service because it costs money to put your emails on someone else's computer. So Google launched Gmail with a gigabyte of storage for free, which was just so profoundly crazy. And the reason Larry did it and the reason he pushed the team to do it was because if you looked out on the, um, the progress that was being made on storage costs, on hard drive storage costs and solid state storage at the time was very nascent. But you could see an arc that demonstrated that the cost of storage was dropping faster than Moore's Law, meaning it would have cost only a few cents to store a gigabyte of data in a few years. And so by the time you get there, by the time you get to a huge scale where it might actually cost you some amount of money, the cost is going to get so cheap, you've now basically built bought the whole market. You're getting the whole market of users on email for free. And there's a distribution curve that you could assume maybe 10% of people will use a gigabyte of data. But 90% of people are probably using less than 20 megabytes. And so you know, then you kind of start to think at first principles on like, what does it mean to give a gigabyte? It doesn't mean you're giving everyone a gigabyte of storage. It means you're promising everyone up to a gigabyte. And by the time they actually start using it, and by the time you get to a lot of users, it's going to be so much cheaper anyway. It does make economic sense to do this because then we capture the whole market for mail and we can put advertisements on it. We know we can make 30 cents CPM or whatever it is. So this will actually be very profitable. And so thinking in terms of first principles and asking yourself the question, are you really thinking big enough? is a common trend thread that I've seen with Larry, Sergey, Elon Musk, even Bill Gates, folks that I think have really moved the needle um, and, and helped kind of to some degree affect the arc of progress of humanity. Uh, it's because they, they are very similar in those notions. Like, are we, you know, how big can you really think? How big can this really get? And, and you know, can you take it back to first principles to justify perhaps a path to getting there? Now, in terms of applying that to the current environment, thinking big enough, what would you say is the highest potential investment theme that you're focused on these days? So we're spending a lot of time on improving the, the production of agriculture um, because I, I, you know, like, I'll just give you guys some interesting statistics. The average um, yield per acre for U.S. corn farmers around 174 bushel per acre. There's a guy in Georgia who regularly gets over 500 bushel an acre. Wow. There's plenty of farmers who get over 300 bushel an acre. Okay, big distribution curve. So the mean in the U.S. is 174. The mean in Brazil is half of that. The mean in uh, Africa is about um, a fifth of that or a tenth of that. These are areas where the land the physical land that you're growing that crop is the same, roughly, in all of those geographies. Same kind of soil, same amount of water, same kind of sunlight. So the plants could grow. The difference is, what are the farmers using? What products are they using? And how are they using them? And so if we just brought the rest of the world up to the mean of the U.S., or if we brought the mean of the U.S. up to the top decile of the U.S., the amount of calorie production that, we're, um, that we would realize the amount of, um, call it sustainability, that, that we would realize, um, the impact it would have would be so extraordinary. This year, the UN estimates that we're seeing an incremental 300 million people marching towards starvation. That's coming off of a baseline of roughly six to 800 million. And that number has been declining for the last three decades. But because of Russia, Ukraine, and the lockdowns, we're seeing this number spike again because all the commodity prices are expensive. People can't farm as much. Supply chains are being disrupted. The rich nations are buying all the food. The poor nations are being left without food. It's a real humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. So really, the question is, can we increase global calorie production? And we have all the tools we need to do it available to us today. Those technologies exist. And editing the genome of organisms, creating novel biological solutions, meaning microbes, instead of chemical synthetic chemicals that have historically been used as pesticides and fertilizers, there are so many tools available to us today 
that are more sustainable and will increase the productivity and profitability of farming and will feed more people and make the world um, you know, a kind of much more secure place. Because by the way, when people don't get food, uh, that's when really bad governments kind of step in and really bad actors start to step in. And it's a real, uh, it's a real uh, social, a uh, global social problem, not just a, um, uh, a geopolitical problem, not just a kind of a social problem. So, um, so, so I'm spending a lot of time on new technologies in agriculture that can very quickly accelerate productivity gains uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and we think that this spans the gamut from microbiome engineering uh, to genome engineering to digital tools. Um, and, you know, all of these are kind of, you know, in the vein of, of sustainability and have a, a real fundamental market force, which is it can make products cheaper for consumers and it can make um, the businesses, the farmers more profitable. So I, I'm just to be clear, I'm also like a very big free market uh, proponent. <laughs> so I think if, if you don't have a product that the customer wants, that's better for them, that's cheaper, that has some improvement, uh, or in a B2B case that's making the, the, the B2B partner more money, uh, it's not going to work. It's, you know, there's no such thing as sustainability if it doesn't have a sustainable business model behind it. So for me, all of this agriculture uh, work uh, is, is incredible because it's both more sustainable, got this humanitarian effect, and the technology is awesome, and it's going to make everyone a lot more money. And one way you're pursuing this, solving this problem, is through your special purpose acquisition company, TPB Acquisition One, recently announced a business combination with Lavoro, Brazil's largest agricultural inputs retailer. Now, can you talk about the thesis behind that deal and what made Lavoro the ideal merger partner for your SPAC? Yeah, so we set up the SPAC not because we're in the asset management business or, you know, kind of traditional SPAC sponsor. Uh, we actually wanted to have a SPAC vehicle because Look, I mean, at the time when we set it up, it was obviously fairly easy to, to set one up. You know, uh, nowadays, SPACs are a four-letter word, and none of them are getting getting set up anymore. And obviously, the SEC is having a, a heartache um, over some really challenging, challenged SPACs. But we took advantage of the market at the time because we wanted a strategic vehicle that we could use to uh, get access to an industrial-scale asset that we believed could be significantly affected by some of the technologies I just talked about. So we looked across several markets, including biomanufacturing, broadly the life sciences, food and agriculture. And so we were looking for a business of scale that was, you know, we mentioned this in our, in our um, IPO prospectus and in our IPO presentations, that we were looking for a business that was profitable, that, that had a significant scaled footprint, but where technology, some technology that we had, you know, a business investment in or access to or expertise in could enhance the margin profile or the growth rate of that underlying industrial asset. And so we found, you know, again, I, I won't, you can read our, our F4 prospectus to see all of the different areas we looked at, but obviously we know agriculture fairly well. We have a number of investments and activities in agriculture. And for a long time, we've known that Latin America is as large as the U.S. in terms of uh, row crop production. Uh, it's about 80 to 85% the scale, the size. And the farmers down there are, um, we would say, under-earning. Yield that they're getting out of the farm is much lower than what we're getting in the U.S. on average. Um, and the market is already realizing that. So those farmers are coming up the technology adoption curve, coming up the yield curve, coming up the profitability curve. And, uh, and the way that you kind of share in that value creation with farmers is at the retail point. The retailer is more like a service provider. Think about them as like a financial advisor. They're not as, it's not like a store where the farmer goes in and picks stuff off the shelf. It's a trusted relationship. Every farmer makes decisions on what to buy, what to use, based on their relationship with the agronomist at their retail store. 
who meets with them typically weekly. And then that agronomist sells them their products and earns a margin for selling them those products. So the way you drive new technology in agriculture is through retail. So these guys are the largest retailer in Brazil, ag retailer in Brazil. And they now have a footprint in six countries across Latin America. And we think that Latin America is, so Latin America as a whole is the largest ag export market in the world, larger than the U.S. Brazil is the second largest ag export market as a country after the U.S. And many project that in a few years, Brazil will be larger than the U.S. So Latin America is already the biggest exporter of calories to the rest of the world. There are you know, all these countries around the world that need to import food uh, to feed their populations are buying predominantly from Latin America. And the market is growing. The inputs market is growing 16% over the last five years per year. So we were really excited because we saw Lavoro as a, you know, a, a real opportunity to help drive the adoption of new technology, to participate uh, in the utilization of that technology. And it's a great business. I mean, you know, last fiscal year, they did a billion six top line, um, projected to do just under uh, 280 million in adjusted EBITDA uh, in t- calendar year 23, uh, just under 200 million uh, in adjusted EBITDA calendar year 22. So, you know, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a profitable business, it's a growing business, um, and it's a business where we identified and understand where Brazilian farmers are not using technology that U.S. farmers are using. And we have several technology businesses that we've already announced partnership, one of which we've announced a partnership with Lavoro uh, to help, um, you know, improve the, the technology availability in that market. As that technology gets utilized, you'll see an increment, we believe you will see an increment in yield uh, in profitability and spend. And this company will, will be a, a primary beneficiary of that. So, um, so that's why we got so excited about it. We're investing $100 million off our balance sheet, uh, you know, in a $10 a share common equity pipe as part of the deal. Um, and, you know, we intend to be very active. We're going to be nominating three of the seven board seats. Um, again, we've announced one commercial deal already with them in one of our businesses. Um, and I think it's a market that we know well. Uh, and I'm just so excited about the upside. Just to give you guys a few more stats, the average American farmer in the U.S. is 59 years old. In Brazil, they're 40 years old. So they're already much more technology savvy. The average American farmer's operating margin is under 5%. In Brazil, it's over 45%. Um, uh, yeah, crazy statistics. In the U.S., the average American farmer has a credit-to-revenue ratio, meaning the amount of debt they have divided by their annual top-line revenue of 1.3x. In Brazil, it's 0.3x. So this is a market that's um, uh, significantly more profitable, much younger, much savvier in terms of technology utilization, in, in terms of the ability to adopt and understand software and the internet tools, uh, which is critical to this um, you know, digital revolution happening in agriculture. And they're under levered. So as capital becomes available, you see them invest more. And you're already seeing those profits being reinvested, the inputs market growing uh, 16%, like I mentioned, the last five years. So um, this is a market in a significant upswing. The macro demands are significant. Uh, we think it's the best management team that we've seen operating that market. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to become close partners with them in this deal. Certainly sounds like Globoro adds a lot of promise as a deal. Um, when, you, when you look back to your investing career, both with the production board, um, your experience with the SPAC, um, or even angel investing, do you have any any misses that come to mind? And, and what did you learn from, from any of those? Um, yeah, so I think there, there's, a, there's a couple of key lessons I've had historically, which is, um, number one, you really have to make sure that you're building a business with, um, you know, really aligned partners that have real ownership with you. 
you know, we set up a number of businesses um, over the years. We've made investments over the years. We've seen uh, a lot of different flavors of people getting hired. To me, I always say everyone is a founder, meaning you have to make sure that there's a, a culture of ownership. And that's one of the key traits and attributes we look for. It either has to be inherent in the organization already when you come in as a builder or as an investor, or um, you know, it has to be built in or you have to have a plan for how you're going to build it in. And so that's something that I think when, when I look back, I've really gotten a sense for um, what, what is and isn't working um, can tie back to this you know, as a, as, a, as a foundation, an ownership mentality. And then again, I think investments where I've missed, meaning I didn't invest, but regret doing so, I, you know, I've got a long list of these, but I've historically um, missed on investments because they almost seemed too hyped up uh, or um, too hot or the valuation was too high. But where all those things that I mentioned earlier you know, the opportunity for the TAM is much more than what the current TAM is. The management team fits that criteria of having bias to action, what I call grit and what a, a narrative. Those are the three key traits for me in entrepreneurism. And, and they have all three of those traits very strongly. Like I, I say that none of those traits are, they're raising money at a cheap price. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that, that's not a trait of successful entrepreneurism. And if the TAM opportunity is big enough, and it's the right person with the right traits, and you know, there's some durable technology advantage that can be built, or some durable network advantage that can be built into the business. Meaning, as it scales, it becomes more valuable, and the margins improve. Uh, um, then I think the uh, you know the opportunity uh, shouldn't be missed. I also think I'll, I'll just speak a little more broadly. If a business, a lot of people talk about businesses pricing power. I think if a business can't lower prices over time, it's a lot less advantage than it may appear to be. If the business can only grow by raising prices over time, then at some point it's likely going to be disrupted. So technology is meant to be deflationary, and so it, you know, or or there's some network effect that allows the the cost model of the business to get to be deflationary. If you can find a business that can do that, meaning the bigger they get, the more of an install base they have, the more product they make, the more people they service, the longer the time that goes by, the cheaper their offering uh, cogs get. Therefore, the cheaper their offering can get to maintain a durable competitive advantage. I think that business is a lot stronger than a business that just happens to have lock-in value with some degree of stickiness, and they can keep charging people more and more every year. That business ultimately will get disrupted by the startup that takes advantage of whatever technology trend has allowed them to enter the market with a lower COGS, disrupt them with a lower price, and win. Because there's only so much stickiness. At some point, the price point breaks, the stickiness. And so I think that's another key point for me. I, you know, I've been an investor and held, held investments for a long time where, I, in retrospect, I think the business was really just taking advantage of a stickiness factor. You know, and by, by the way, a good example of this is a lot of social networks that we've seen over the last couple of years get disrupted one after another after another. And everyone thought the, sticky, the stickiness was so high. But ultimately, I think the business has to be able to offer something that's better and cheaper. Uh, and then it needs to find other ways to add on additional value to, to grow its top line or to grow its number of users or customers. So I don't know. That was very high-level philosophical response to your statement. I hope it was okay. No, that was great insight. And uh, just keep being mindful of the time here. Just one last quick one before we let you go, Dave. CEO, entrepreneur, investor, you obviously got to manage your time efficiently and effectively. What would you say is your favorite productivity hack? My favorite productivity hack? I don't know. Um, I, I really, 
encourage people to think, I mean, I was just talking uh, about this this morning to make sure that <laughs> every meeting that gets scheduled, you have a sense of what the agenda items are. And those agenda items are either you're trying to drive to a decision, you're driving, you're asking for an opinion, or you're just informing. A lot of the stuff that you're informing on nowadays can be, oh, here, I'll give you guys a good one, because this fits with that that mode. So delete what I just said. Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a simpler answer. A year ago, or, or a couple years ago, we started encouraging all of our boards and our CEOs and management teams to use Loom, where you can actually record a video of someone giving a presentation with the presentation side by side. So a lot of us go to meetings and we're presented to. It's a total friggin' waste of time because then the meeting, everyone's sitting in a room getting this presentation synchronously. By recording a presentation of someone giving the presentation side by side with the presentation itself, sending it out ahead of time and letting people watch it at 2x speed or skip ahead or whatever, it allows them to get all the content that they need ahead of the meeting. And then the meeting can really be organized around the idea of what are you trying to decide? What opinions are you trying to gather? And is there any informing left to be done? Typically, all the informing then gets moved out of the meeting. You save all that time. All of the informing of a meeting gets done asynchronously. And then a meeting can really be focused around what are the decisions and the opinions we're trying to get out of this meeting. And so we've encouraged all of our CEOs to do this across our boards. And we now get board meetings down from four hours to two hours. Uh, And those two hours are far more engaging and far more productive. And you have really deeply engaged strategic conversations versus just the management team presenting a bunch of numbers that the board could have and should have consumed as their homework ahead of time. I also think it gives people something to do in the evenings because a lot of people don't have meetings in the evenings, but they got plenty of time to do work. So having those presentations happen to them um, you know, off of the normal course of, of business hours, I think is also a good use of a good productivity hack. I mean, who doesn't like more efficient meetings, right? Totally. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Dave, for coming on the show today. Um, a lot of interesting stuff happening at the production board. You have the SPAC as well, TPP acquisition and the Lavoro deal looks to be on track. And um, the insight into Brazil's uh, or the potential of Brazil's agriculture is just uh, pretty exceptional. So thank you for sharing everything today and wish you the best of luck. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.